Hello and welcome to another episode of The Warrior Artist, a podcast full of practical advice and insights into artist's practice to inspire you on your creative journey. My name is Aideen Glynn, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Irish visual artist and project facilitator, Rachel Doolan. Rachel graduated with a BA in Fine Art from the Crawford College of Art and Design and has received many awards, grants and residencies. Rachel's multidisciplinary approach merges art, experimentation and ecology. She collaborates with artists, NGOs, community and professional organisations to create meaningful artworks in response to social and environmental issues. Rachel, hello and welcome to the Warrior Artist Podcast and thank you for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Thanks for having me. So Rachel, to start off, I'd love to take you back to art college. Did you always want to be an artist? I think I, yeah, I did always want to be an artist, but I was deterred from it. I was certainly uh, not really, I suppose, from a, a hugely creative parental support group. I was very much, I suppose, guided towards a real job kind of thing. So that kind of, I think, deterred me from going to art college. And it wasn't until a little bit later on in life when I was, I think, 28. And I actually just had a child. And that really just, I just thought, I I really have to do this. And it's now or never thing. So yeah, so I embarked on art college. I started with a portfolio course. So my son was three months old when I started in Claustro Stefanefa. And that was the best experience ever. I spent a year there and I developed a portfolio of work to be able to apply for the Crawford College of Art and Design. And then I was accepted there. And yeah, I started my journey. So that was a good long time ago now. 2010, 2011. Oh, wow. Balancing motherhood and going to art college. That sounds like that's not easy at all. I was going to ask you, your work is so multidisciplinary and research led. What areas in art college really appeal to you? I think when I was in art college, I was very much about wanting to explore all different techniques and materials. And you're in art college, which I disagree with in a bit, you're geared towards choosing something very early on in that exploration. And I didn't want to do that. And I I didn't want to be pigeonholed into any one specific area. So I just floated around doing different kinds of things. I was painting, printmaking, working within textiles and mixed media, but also sculpture, mold making, metalwork. And I just wanted to absorb as much skills uh, that I could while I was in art college. So that was what I was very much focused on. But also... I suppose my interest in environment and ecology has always been a thread throughout my work and my practice. And how did you balance motherhood with going full time in our college? It was difficult time, but it was also great because it's the same thing, really, is having a nine to five job. I would go to college nine to five or eight to four. And I was very lucky. I'm very lucky because at the time my husband was working on a shift work a week on a week off. We also found a really lovely lady who was Hugh's first minder. So yeah, between my husband and between our minder and then when Hugh was a little bit older then he went to creche and preschool and I ended college when he was in his first year in, not first class, junior infants. (laughs) So that was great as well. So yeah, it was just really balancing that. And also Hugh has been a huge part of my creative journey. And even now today, he's, he attends workshops that I do. He helps me with things. He he comes down to the sculpture factory. He's so, it's just second nature to him, really. Well, that's all he's known, that his mom is an artist and that's his life. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I wanted to ask you about Heirloom. I was lucky enough to see Heirloom in person when it was on exhibition earlier this year in the LHQ gallery in Cork and it's very beautiful and I found it very deeply moving as well and I know the theme underpinning the installation is about the critical importance and our dependence on seeds and I read a little bit into it from what the material you had there and that it was inspired by arctic based research that you did initially can you tell us about that residency how long you were there and how that inspired the whole project I decided shortly after art college that what I needed to do was go on an artist residency and experience what that is. So I decided to begin researching different residencies. But actually what happened was I ended up reading an article about the Svalbard seed vaults. I decided, okay, let's have a look and see if there is a residency in Svalbard. So there was a kind of a self-directed residency that was available in a place called Gallery Svalbard, which is an Arctic uh, art institute uh, based 
on the group of islands and also discovered there was a commercial airline that would travel to Svalbard. And so as, as I'm sure you know, Svalbard is located halfway between Norway and the North Pole. So it's the furthest place that one can travel by a commercial airline and also the furthest north, which is actually inhabited. So that was all really interesting things, you know. And when I started researching a little bit more into the location, I was looking into how that this particular place, which is just seems like it's at the ends of the earth, really has actually this really long history of resource extraction. So we're talking from beginning with sealing, which whales were, I think, almost whale to extinction, and which is quite amazing. So when I was there, I there was just I saw so many whales, and that was just amazing to see how nature had really survived and come back from that. Then I think fur trapping and the hunting of polar bears and seals, and then they discovered coal there in the 19th century. All of the mountains then were explored for coal extraction. So it's quite amazing because the first thing I noticed when I arrived in Svalbard. I went by bus into Longyearbyen, which is the, one of the main sort of towns that people live in. And also Longyearbyen, John Longyearbyen, I think it was his name, who set up this coal mining community or discovered the coal in Svalbard. You can see where they would have searched for coals. Some maybe there was a coal mine there or others they were just searching to see if it was there. And the landscape almost gashes in this landscape where you've got this red sediment coming out. So it's, it's like the mountains are scarred and bleeding. It, it's quite amazing. And also this sort of long history then of coal mining. It's a very extreme environment. Winter is no sunlight. Summer is 24 hours of sunlight. It's, yeah, I think it's 60% covered in ice. So actually in winter, as well as traveling anywhere outside of long year, but it's quite difficult and you need a snowmobile to do that. When I was there, it was 24 hours of sunlight. That was worked out really well for me, actually, because I was only there for two weeks. So I got okay. extra research and exploration. There was all of these things that were happening. And also there was these opposing forces at play within the place. So you've got this coal mine, this coal mining industry that is almost obsolete. However, there are coal mines in operation as well. But as far as I know, it's still in operation now and actually run by coal because they haven't brought in sustainable ways as of yet. Because, as they say, because of the extreme environment, it's sustainable ways to bring energy to Svalbard, to Longyearbyen. And then you've got this, it's a hub, a center of Arctic research. You've got like a major university there. And then you've also got many different countries who have Arctic research hubs there as well, climate research. So I just thought that those two things, quite an unusual paradox. And then also that this is the home of the Svalbard Seed Vault. So Svalbard Seed Vault, for anyone that doesn't know, is basically a backup of the world's agricultural seeds. A lot of the seed banks in the world would have also a backup of their collections within the Svalbard Seed Vault. So it's a backup of a backup, really. These seeds are kept preserved naturally by being buried within a permafrost mountain. It's a big concrete building, which it just juts out of the side of the mountain quite post-apocalyptic looking. <laughs> this to me was really interesting because also that the world's agriculture is being safeguarded in this place, this Arctic region that essentially can't sustain agriculture. So again, that was another interesting way of looking at things. It's a place where there are more polar bears than there are human beings living there. So I think wow. there's less than 3,000 people that live there, but there's about 3,500 polar bears there. So you actually can't travel outside. So it's illegal to travel outside a perimeter of Longyearbyen. You can't go off on your own into the wilderness as much as I would love to because there is a re very real danger there and you have to have a specific gun training. And of course, no one wants to be going shooting polar bears for any reason. You would need to go with a guide or you would need to go with a group of people that know what they're doing. So I found that a little bit tricky while I was there because I didn't have guides really set up and I was was a little bit dependent on going down the tourist route until the sort of the end of the trip there where I met this one man who was very young, just starting up a business. He had a tall ship and he was doing sort of private tours and I had booked one of his group tours. The other people didn't actually show up. So I ended up getting a private tour and he said, listen, like how much money do you have left basically? And I was like, not very much to be quite and he said, look, he goes, I just love sailing and you want to come and we can go off for a few days and I can take you to some of the glacial reasons and I will go with you into the wilderness and I will 
make sure that you're protected and you can video and you can collect things and you can do whatever you want and he completely undisturbed. So that was amazing. That was the best thing that happened to me over there actually to be able to do that and very kind of him and my journey started off I was getting ready and I was getting all my camera equipment and everything that I needed to go and I got a phone call from him and he said are you ready? I was only meeting him at 12 or something and he rang me at 10 or 10 and he said oh because there's a group of beluga whales in the bay so if you can come now and we can go and have a look and be with the beluga whales. I got myself to go as quickly as possible, ran down to with this meeting point. And the meeting point wasn't even a dock. It was quite funny. And he was a really big kind of Norwegian man. He came onto the shore. He took my bags. He put them in the thing. And then he came back and he carried me. And he put me in the... There was not once did I think like, why am I going off? It's <laughs> <laughs> with this man and then he he obviously had also some crew but also his own girlfriend was on his boat as well which was <laughs> amazing so was it photography mostly you were documenting to be honest when I went over there I didn't really know what I was going to be doing but I just knew I'm not a videographer probably was the first time that I had really used video in my work but I just really wanted to document the landscape as best as I could not knowing what I would do with that footage or whether that footage was even any good. Now I just have very entry level camera equipment. The one thing that I was really blown away by was the acoustic ecology of the places that we were going to. So you think of there's a place where there's no other human beings and there's no cars and there's there's nothing but wildlife and the the glaciers that you're faced with. I had never heard a glacier before. I was just blown away by the sounds that it's making. It's constantly speaking, it's grumbling, it's crumbling, it's creaking. The strangest sensory experience that I had and a very emotional a sensory experience. I'm not a sound artist myself and I didn't have the sound equipment to be able to capture all of what I wanted of that experience. But what I did was when I came back, I worked with a video editor. I started putting that footage together in this streamlike sequence. Then with the sound, I extracted all of the sound from the video footage that was usable. And then I had knitted it all back together to create a separate composition. And also there were some areas where I had taken video footage, say, from a tour that would have been with other people. And all I have is people talking in the background. I was trying to record the sound of the ice, which is basically releasing millions of years of gas out of it and making this popping sound and crackling. And it's so loud. It's like this orchestra of ice that is making the sound. I wanted to record that and I had a recordings but I just had people also speaking in those recordings and I, at the time I didn't really have the skills. I was looking at sound recordings in that area so I got in contact with a Polish scientist his name was Oscar Glowacki and he had been doing acoustic research in the area where they were putting hydrophones onto remnants of ice and underwater and in the glacial bays to be able to do recordings to analyze those recordings to be able to dictate or understand how fast a glacier is receding or melting. I got in contact with him and he was lovely and he just said yeah and he just basically sent me a massive file of hours and hours of all his research and he was like yeah you said away no problem. So I was just listening to the sound of ice for hours and hours and you can hear in some of the recordings there's like a ghost-like sound and that seals actually under the water which is quite amazing. So then I incorporated those recordings in to that composition and again very ad hoc I didn't have skills in that area probably now when I listen back I know I could do a better job but at the time I was putting it together myself and, and probably best to be a bit more naive about these things because otherwise you might stop yourself from doing it or think that you don't have the right tools. How did that lead to Heirloom and inspire that project? I was actually going to the Arctic specifically to see the Svalbard Seed Vault. I did, I went there. I didn't go into the Svalbard Seed Vault. I hadn't organised to be able to go in there. No one can go in there. Is it sealed to the outside then? You can't, there's no access, no visitors. No, absolutely no visitors, no. And at the time, I was very much starting off in my career, just finished college, and I didn't really have a portfolio in a way to be able to contact these particular organisations and try to gain access to these places. I didn't have a profile. <laughs> 
up. And so I didn't feel the confidence to do that. But ultimately what I did was I went, I visited the outside. I documented that. I recorded, there's a big vent and the vent every few minutes, the vent goes off and I presume it's just bringing air in or out or I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but it's like a really loud vent that goes off every few minutes. I had that documentation and it wasn't until I came back to Ireland and I started looking after creating that a series of work, which was based really about more of the glacial regions, I went back to thinking about seeds because I was invited to be part of an exhibition, which was actually within a decommissioned bank in Cork. The artist group had taken over the bank vault as well, the whole bank, but also they had some artists that were exhibiting in the bank vault that part of the project was called What is a Library? Then I was talking to a friend of mine who was organizing the exhibition and I was telling her that I'd been to Svalbard. She said, oh, I didn't know you've been to Svalbard. She said, do you have anything that you could put into the exhibition? And, and then I said, oh, actually, I have a lot of documentation of the seed vaults. I'll go back and I'll revisit that. And that's when I created the photographic diptych, which is called The Weight of Mountains, which is an image of the Svalbard seed vault. And that went into the bank vault along with a table with five kind of different kinds of seeds. So that, that's when I actually started exploring seeds and what was happening with seeds and biodiversity in Ireland. And my first port call that was visiting Madeleine McKeever's home, who's the owner of Brown Envelope Seeds in West Cork. And then also getting in contact with Irish Seed Savers. I was speaking with Jennifer McConnell, which is the former manager of Irish Seed Savers. Jennifer w- was traveling to Madeleine McKeever. So I was also invited for that trip. I met them, plus Serena Allen, who turned up halfway through the day. And I've been given a tour of Madeline's home and business. I just then found it really interesting because this tour was happening with the seeds and the stories. So it was showing of the seed, but then Madeline would then tell me maybe a story connected with that seed. And I just thought, wow, so seeds have these sort of profound stories. They're like these sort of miniature libraries that can tell us so much if we look at those histories and not only that also the potential that was where I began the seed work it was very much an experience that inspired or or led me to the next place the next thing and branches just kept sprouting and I just kept following them and then when I had when I was overwhelmed (laughs) with information then I had to find a way to be able to put that into an exhibition that could maybe be translated and other people could maybe see a little bit what I was seeing or understanding or experiencing at the time. That makes sense now because there are different elements to the installation where you communicate that story about the seeds. Can you tell us about the seedarium, which is the, just the visual representation of, like I remember being struck when I saw it, that it's a, when you enter the exhibition, you see it from the back, it's this wooden carved structure. And then on the, when you go into the far side, you can see that it's hollow and inside it, there are these beautiful seeds that are displayed like little jewels lit up. And that's, that's the most striking part of the exhibition when you see it first from a visual point of view. And then over to the side, they have the green book, which lists all the contributors to, who donated those seeds and a little personal line about the narrative or how they donated it. But the seedarium is, is really beautiful. And can you tell us about the inspiration behind that and about the collecting of the seeds and how you made it? Yeah, so the inspiration for that piece actually very much stemmed from the all of the, I suppose, seed advocates that I was in contact with for the accompanying piece that's in the exhibition, which is called Seed Cloud, where I actually recorded, I interviewed and recorded a lot of different people and heard their story as well as stories of seed that I included in the exhibition. And it was actually there from their passion and their words, actually, that I was inspired to create the seed area, but also from going. So I suppose a part of what came from that trip to Madeleine McKeever was I received Saber's kind of willingness to work with me as a sort of an artist in residence. So I did spend some time visiting Irish seed savers and getting involved with seed packing or planting or digging manure. (laughs) There was like a very real connection to Irish seed savers there. And I suppose within it, I was observing this sense of community 
and let how often these organizations and that are not-for-profit organization, like the amount of work that actually happens in these organizations is dependent on the passion of the people and who devote their life to this work. So I just thought that I was really inspired by that. And also the excite how seeds excited the people that I interviewed. And that in turn really excited me that these seeds... There are so many different connections. Yes, it's food, it's spiritual, it's biodiversity. And there was all of these themes coming up repeatedly in every person that I met that has anything to do with seeds. And also one, so again, like I went to Svalbard, I saw the seed world. It's certainly my work would not be about promoting, putting seeds in seed banks. Yes, it is a fantastic idea for the future, but... Ultimately, what is what I really found interesting is one of the people I interviewed, which is Will Bonzel, and he's a organic farmer, activist, and he owns the Scatterseed, or he's a CEO of the Scatterseed Project based in Maine, USA. And he was also featured in the documentary Seed, the Untold Story. Uh, he's, a, he's an amazing man, and I interviewed him. And one of, one of the things he said that struck me, he said, the real seed banks are actually in the people's gardens. They're in the gardens of people and that's where they need to be because that is where the future of keeping biodiversity and, and keeping things alive, not in a seed bank for a, an apocalyptic event where we become a necessity. Like we need to now, this is where we need our seed banks and this is where we need to put our energy and that really struck me, struck me that actually, yeah, it is, that that's what needs to happen. So that's when I decided that the piece that I created was called Cedarium. So I wanted to create a space which ultimately would exhibit or present seeds in, in this sort of almost temple-like space where you could come and view the seeds, contemplate the seeds, but also I didn't want to be the one that's sort of curating the seeds. So I didn't want to choose seeds on their hierarchy either. Like what, who chooses what seeds go into a seed bank? And generally, a lot of the time, they are the seeds that are maybe important in agriculture or production or industry. I didn't want to be, I wanted to invite the people to make the decision about what seeds are going to go into this exhibition. I didn't want to limit any. Body, um, or exclude anybody by talking about heirloom seeds or that, that it would have to be heirloom seeds specifically or open pollinated seeds because a lot of people don't really know what that is. I didn't know what that what, what an open pollinated or heirloom seed was before I started this project. So I just basically put a call out uh, through Irish Seed Savers Network. So I use their kind of platform, put it through their newsletter, through their email, through their social media to invite people to participate in the heirloom project by, I suppose, mindfully gathering seeds, saving those seeds and sending them to me. And they were also invited to contribute words along with those seeds. And all I asked was that maybe that there was some sort of a, a connection really to, to that seed in some way. And that might be a connection in the moment. It didn't have to be a historical connection or anything like that. And it was really about this conscious act of doing something and being involved in something and bringing together a community archive. That's exactly what I wanted to do. So how I did it was I just set up a page on my website and people just, if they were wanted to get involved, they just put their name and their address. And then I sent them out an heirloom pack. So I sent them out an envelope and inside I had little small envelopes. In fact, I have some over there with little heirloom stickers on it. And then I had space for you to write your message on the back on what the seed is and why, why you sent it. So they sent me the seeds. So I got all together, I think I got 90 or more. I got more than 90 seeds. But what was interesting to me was... None of these people were in touch with each other and everyone sent them from all over the place and nobody in, in those 90 or more seed varieties that were sent, I think I only had two of the same. Yeah, so that was amazing. And also what I found was great was I asked people if the seeds were too tiny like that it might be difficult for me to be able to work with them. But if they sent them in the dried pod, that I might be able to work with them. 
so funny enough, even people that sent me two different, one sent me in the pod and then the other sent me the seed. So they were still doing these. And so I just thought that was really interesting and it really speaks to the, the idea of biodiversity because that just... And it meant you could use all the contributions because nobody duplicated it. So you didn't have to exclude yeah. anybody. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, no one was excluded that, that sent it. And some people sent more. A lot of people actually sent more than one seed. It was great. It was really great. And I think in total, yeah, because in total, I think I had more. 30 or something or a little bit more than 30, it might have been 35, I can't remember, contributors. And so I just got such, and it was very exciting. It's very exciting for me to receive these packages and all the, and to see the seeds and on their form and all the possibilities. So that was a very exciting way for me to work because you're, you don't know what you're getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you've got to work out, okay, how am I going to do this? So the other thing as well is I use they are basically preserved. You will never be able to plant them again. However, they're preserved in bioresin. And some of those seeds are not native as well. So they're not native to Ireland. I'm making sure that those seeds will never be able to be planted because I don't want to be adding to any kind of a problem. So they're actually permanently preserved in a bioresin, which is it's a 70% plant-derived resin. And did you know that at the beginning? Was that your decision at the outset? Had you that vision of how you were going to present it or preserve it before asking for the donation? I did have that idea in my head because I had worked previously with resin and had worked with encapsulating and preserving things in resin. But this was my kind of first time actually using this particular product, which was eco re uh, resin. I was, you know, it was my first time really knowing. I didn't know how the two things were going to work together and also because seeds are a living thing and they're continuously leaving out air so we, we say the seeds are breathing so you get little air bubbles as well and you just have to embrace that as well because they just look like they're submerged in um, their own little world they're like little they're like the cosmos really they, that's how I interpret them after the after I made them and then for the structure itself I collaborated with an architectural design company called Woodskin and they are based in Italy. At this stage of my career, some of my ideas really have surpassed my own skills. I uh, collaborated with this design company, which I'm so delighted that I did. What I wanted to do is I needed to create something that could be taken down, packed away and could be transported so that I wanted it to be like a public artwork that could be moved around that different people could see it. I got funding to create it from the Arts Council of Ireland. I wasn't tied to creating commission for just one space or one organisation. So I have this piece that is for the community, by the community. So I collaborated with this company and I gave them some drawings, some ideas and a design brief of how I wanted these seats to be seen. And then I created the resin pieces, took all the measurements, and then at the end of the project, I created the map of seeds. They sent me their design drawings. I altered them and sent them back to them, and that's how we worked. And then they, they sent me the piece. I put it up in the National Sculpture Factory, and then I began to put in all the seeds that I had made, and then I created a map of those seeds and an accompanying book that also included the words of people if they wished to contribute them. They're really very beautiful. I love the way they were placed, like it wasn't totally symmetrical. And just back to the resin, they reminded me of like fossils or something trapped in amber and they were obviously, they were lit as well. Did you use a lighting in the center or do you have your own lighting within the piece? Because they looked like little jewels. They were so beautiful. So again, that was back to my ideas around the design. I needed the piece to travel and go to multiple locations, as some of which may not have professional lighting. So the piece on the outside is there's outer leaves that allow light, natural light to come behind the seed. But it just means that I have less control over that. So maybe some seeds are more illuminated than others or at different times of the day, if it's natural lighting, you've got some seed illuminated and other ones not because I didn't want to incorporate LED lighting because I think that brings a very different feel to things. It's a very scientific aesthetic. It was additional expense. You need a lighting designer. And then it's also something else that I have to take responsibility for in terms of packing it and sending it places and having sockets available. So that was a very intentional decision on my part. 
because somebody already asked me that question. Why are some seeds lit and some seeds aren't lit? It's just very much about how the light is falling into those inner leaves and illuminating the seed. It's very clever. And are those resin pieces fixed within the structure or do they all have to come out each time you store it? They're fixed. They're fixed in permanently. They're glued in. And then if it needs repair, I can repair them then as well. It's an Akime plywood, which is a Japanese tree. And then it's also got an anodized aluminium laminate on the inside, which is golden laminate on the inside. And I again wanted to just play with that idea of light and reflection. But I knew that lovely quality that it played with the light and it was going to help bring a richness and a depth. So that. And then you asked me before about how I created the resin pieces. Yeah. So like mold making would have been something that I loved in college and that's continued throughout my career as an artist. And it's a very handy skill to have. Again, this idea of magnification and the size of seeds. When I was trying to work out what am I going to do? Are they going to be flat circles? Is it going to be like kind of petri dish type of thing? Are they going to be squares? Are they going to be triangles? Or what I was going to do? I started looking at the idea of a magnifying glass that cabochon shape and how that actually magnifies. So I thought, okay, if you imagine the glass half domes that you can get for reading, for putting on newspaper. So I just thought, I wonder what the optical magnification of that would be if I tried that in resin. So I just got a series of sizes of those glass domes, half glass domes, then I use clay to raise each dome by a centimeter. From that, I took a master mold from those. So I had a master, I took a few master molds from each size. So then I had the cavity and the shape to be able to recreate it in the resin. So I was very excited to find on my first attempt how well it worked at magnifying the seeds. Some of the beans that are in the show, they just look humongous. From the back, you can see the actual size. They're just small, but when you look at them from the front, they're magnified. That's fascinating. It makes them really like that little jewel that you're looking at. But did you any have any particular favourites that you just love for your own reason, your own personal connection to certain seeds? I have a, a few favourites. Oh, I just love them all, really, to be honest. There's a few that I really love. I love the honesty seed. I just think it's so beautiful. And that sort of little translucent pod just really appeals to me aesthetically. There is also uh, one that my son contributed, which is he just managed to find this chestnut still in its shell. The chestnut is just slightly open and it almost looks like an eye, but I just thought it was amazing. And he brought that back and he said, oh, look at this. It's still trapped in it. And it was just gorgeous, a gorgeous form. I think there's an American, I think it's an American horse chestnut or an American chestnut or an American sycamore, I think. Quite a large seed, but I just love that again. It's beautiful. I loved in the exhibition that you had, that map was part of it. That you could look at it and look at the pieces. Like I think it was really interesting. And I'll share links to all this in the blog that goes with the podcast on your website. So I love that you still have a seed cloud is there where you can hear the recordings, which in the exhibition you could trigger with your own mobile device by holding it over a bowl of seeds. It was really fascinating. There were so many layers to it and it was very interesting. And on the day I saw it, I was on my own. So I really could spend a lot of time there and I really loved that. How many pieces does it go apart in and where are you storing it? From a practical point of view. That's really interesting that you should ask me that question because I have just commissioned some crates to be built for it, which ultimately they're going to be huge. But I needed to get the crates because it needs kind of protection, I think, for traveling around. And also, yeah, I needed to be able to store it upright. So I have a kind of a steel tech shed out the back. It's not huge, but it's insulated. It's really a new addition that is going to be where I can store some of my artwork. Ultimately, I would hope that it will find a forever home because I can't really store these things forever because I want to create new work as well. And so I've got these crates built and I'm about to put the pieces. So there's actually a huge amount of pieces. There's 13 inner panels which are the gold panels with the seeds. There's like a base panel. Then there's, I think, 15 wooden struts that, that support or wooden supports that the inner panels are then put in. And then you've got the outer leaves. There's a huge abundance of those outer leaves. <laughs> but it does amazingly pack up really neatly. And now it'll even be better when they're in the crates as well and more kind of manageable in terms of kind of storage as well. And we'll go on exhibition anywhere else, Rachel, because it's such an interesting story. 
Yeah, so it was just selected for the sculpture in context at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin in September. I'm not sure if I'll be able to exhibit the book with it or where the space is within it and also what the environment is. It'd be inside or outside the exhibition? Definitely be inside. I would love to see it in one of the conservatories. I just have a vision of walking into a conservatory and just seeing this seed form in the middle of it. Like a little alien ship. When is that on, that exhibition? So that is on in the beginning. It starts in the beginning of September and it goes through to October. Anybody in Dublin, definitely go and see it. It's really beautiful. And I was curious as well to know what was the reaction to the People who donated their seeds, the seed savers, did they go to see the exhibition and what they think of the installation? Lots of people went to see it and they loved it. So yeah, I got like a really lovely response and people that came to the opening came up and said thank you. And, you know, I obviously thanked them. They all seemed to be really happy in how they were presented and how their seeds were presented within the Cedarium sculpture. It was so great. You didn't have to exclude anybody. So it was like perfect. I loved it so much and I had so many questions when I saw it. But your current project is also equally fascinating. Ocelithic, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's a collaboration with sound artist Anne-Marie DC. Can you tell us about this project and where the inspiration came from with another fascinating story? So I was invited last year by Solstice Art Centre as an artist to be part of a project called Artist Laboratory, which was exploring the landscape of Devonish. Devonish Lands of Douth, which is currently owned by an agri company who it's also part of a network of research farms called Lighthouse Farms. So they invest in researching sustainable agriculture. This is a really interesting kind of landscape because it's also part of the Bruna Boinia, the Boyne Valley, where, you know, you have new grange and now and a lot of Neolithic or major, I suppose, Neolithic monuments in Ireland. On those lands that are owned by Devonish is the most recent Neolithic mound to be discovered in Ireland is on their site. So it was actually discovered underneath Douth Hall, which is a farmhouse, a Georgian farmhouse, which is on, on the lands. It was only discovered because the owners actually invited UCC when they were renovating the house to make it a family home. Not UCC, sorry, UCD, Archaeology Department. <laughs> I'm all about Cork. No, this was Dublin <laughs> to take part, to be present while they were excavating. The diggers went in and began to dig into the landscape and they hit an art stone. They now have this amazing monument on the land, but also a, a very different from, say, visiting Newgrange because you really feel like you're part of something that no one really knows about and very special, privileged to be able to be there it's still an excavation site really there and it's filled with bags and stones and piles and stones with labels on it and I became quite interested in this part um, of it although there were so many layers there's so many different directions you could go you could have went into the research that they were doing in Devonish themselves there's also the Netable Institute and a long history with that building there's Douth Hall Again, huge history. There's medieval sites. There's so many ways of interacting. But I just became, my practice, I was very much interested in materials and really exploring those materials quite intensely. So for me, the seed was the material of the last exhibition and that was the medium of it and really going deep into that exploration of seeds. And so this time around, what actually caught my eye was these quartz stones that are found in most of the passage tombs in Ireland. And it was the archaeologist Kleena Nilinon who was giving us a tour of the site at Stouth. She had told us that the quartz that is actually found at these sites aren't there. It's not naturally part of the geology of these landscapes. So they were stone that has been intentionally carried by our ancestors to these sites. And that was something that I never thought of, ever. <laughs> you know, you think of Newgrange. Newgrange is completely clad in white quartz. And while that is not how Newgrange was found, and it is a reconstruction of what they think, a theory of, of what it might have looked like, it, it's still made of the quartz that was carried there. Quartz was not brought in. 
to build that facade. I thought that was really amazing. And, and so I, I started looking a little bit more into that. And apparently, and I hope I look up, I'm not sure if I get my numbers right, but something like 40,000 tons of quartz has been discovered in Neolithic sites. And they say that of that 40,000 tons, it's traveled a minimum of 25 kilometers from the site that it's collected. So I just thought that was really interesting for a variety of reasons. If you think of the Neolithic as being the beginning of settlement and farming, but also the beginning of mining and moving earth. And I suppose when we think now about how we move earth, we as humans move earth twice as much as natural forces move earth on a daily basis. I thought that was quite an interesting idea. And I started looking a little bit more into quartz. So that particular stone is associated, I think, with both the moon and the sun. And as we know, the Neolithic peoples would have been worshippers of the sun and the moon and the cosmos. So it has a quality. It's called tribaluminescence. So if you take two pieces of quartz and you rub them together, the crystal is fracturing inside. And what it does is it creates an orange glow. The quartz starts glowing. I actually tested this out and it worked. So I took quartz and I went underneath my jumper and it got a really dark space and I rubbed and rubbed and rubbed and lo and behold, this orange circle started to glow out of the sun. So that was very exciting. So if you imagine in a world without light and the sun and the moon are essentially your higher power your gods and then suddenly these stones emit this light almost like if it's a soul while no one really knows exactly what the quartz was brought there for because it's one of the hardest rocks to carve why were these stones brought there and what did they mean there's also theories around that there was a trade in quartz and possibly quartz was a currency and maybe this is how it's actually been found in many other places not just Ireland it's a universal idea I became interested in that I took these ideas back to the sculpture factory and the sculpture factory is amazing because you're in with lots of other artists and a lot of those artists are amazing artists and you're having conversations all the time with different artists as well in that kind of hive of activity as well and conversation. I was speaking with another artist, Anne-Marie DC. She specializes in sound sculptures. So she's both visual and sound and really amazing at what she does. And she actually has an exhibition coming up in Galway called Musica Universalis. I spoke to her about the quartz and then she just said, did you see the quartz that's on my desk? And I said, I was like, no, I didn't see any quartz. So she had this big lump of rose quartz that was on her desk. She said, yeah, like from a perspective of sound, quartz is an oscillator. When you apply a voltage, it oscillates at a, a regular frequency. The quartz clock, that's what they use to keep time. At the timekeeper, it's used to create radios. She actually showed me how to create a quartz radio. I'm not sure if I could recreate it, but she was trying to show and explain to me how it works and how the technology works. And then we started looking at quartz as this material that was part of the material culture of our ancestors is actually so embedded in our current contemporary material culture. It's in our phones, it's in our solar panels, it's a communication, it's in fiber optics. That kind of blew my mind. I asked Samri if she would like to collaborate on this project and she was willing to go on this kind of crazy journey with me. We both went to Demnish together and Marie brought all of her sound equipment and we did a sonic excavation of the site at Douds. And then Marie composed a piece which was presented as a sound sculpture uh, in a recent exhibition called Holdings, which was shown at Solstice Art Centre. So it was all of the different artists that were invited to engage in the landscape and their research, what came out of that experience. So we exhibited a sound sculpture which was a kind of a table piece on trestles which the table was actually the speaker and Marie had used particular hardware to be able to sound the table and then the table was filled with the quartz stone so I didn't take the quartz stone from the site <laughs> but what I did was I followed a specific route that they thought maybe that particular quartz may have come from Glendalough and I went to Glendalough and I collected some quartz there from an abandoned mine where they were mining for lead, which would be found in the court as veins within the court. So again, another connection, a mining connection there as well. This is very much at the start of this project. We're both quite busy at the moment and we're hoping to come together again in August, September and then see where it takes us. So we've also applied for a collaborative residency together in Iceland. So we've just made that application. <laughs> you have to wait. 
for reply. I found this project fascinating. I did a year in archaeology, so I have some little knowledge of this. Researching for today, I watched a YouTube video by the lead architect where she talks about the amazing discovery, which I'll actually link in the show notes because it's like a real detective story about finding the site and the moment where she knew she had discovered a new passage tomb of significance, probably the most significant find of 50 years in Ireland. She doesn't mention the quartz anywhere in that. She talks about the famous grey stones I used for the carvings. There's no mention anywhere of the court. And I just thought that is something that you noticed as an artist. And then the whole visual sense of how they used it. There were burial tombs or people came together. And there's so many theories. But that idea of creating light, because obviously it was all about the solstice and a place of darkness. Did you actually record the quartz? Were you allowed into the passage tomb? That particular one is not about going into the passage tomb. Only a section of the site is excavated and the stones are exposed. So there's no inside anything. But what we did was there were other passage tombs all over the place, really. So we found another little place that we put a mic down into overnight. The space where it's found, it's like a natural amphitheater of sound. So we just recorded that environment, kind of listening to what our ancestors may have been listening to but also amalgamated with all of these contemporary interruptions. So you've got tractors going through, you've got planes coming overhead in these recordings, and none of that stuff is edited out of the composition because that's very much part of it as well. We recorded us rubbing, so that idea of ritual and how these stones may have been used within ritualistic practice. So we basically sat in... (laughs) Cleaning Leonan's cabin. So while she was extracting tiny particles of quartz and bone on her desk with a tweezers and a light, we were in the other corner rubbing quartz together and recorded. There are the artists in the corner rubbing. That's it. I'm treading a thin line here between some witchcraft. Yeah. And would it be a visual aspect or do you know yet? I know it's still early stages. Would you be showing the light that's created, this orange light? Is that going to be part of your plan for the eventual exhibition or installation of this project? I have really no idea what we're going to create. I know, all I know is that it will be visual sound. It will be a sound installation, sound sculpture, because that is what we are both interested in. That is the route that we're both interested in taking with it. As I said, it's early days. I feel like we're still investigating different things and would like to bring it all together as well. Hopefully the residency in Iceland and and also the kind of research partners or the connections that we've made, that we're going to revisit all of those and start bringing together what we would like to through through the visual. As I said, I went on residency in 2017 because I wanted to go to the Svalbard Seed Vault, but ultimately I didn't actually exhibit work about seeds until 2022. I know we had COVID in between, but my process is very slow and it's, I suppose, considered and I have to think through everything. And it's very much about the sort of journey. And then the final product is I suppose, less important for me than the journey of getting there. So hopefully it won't be as long as five years. (laughs) But I'll be, yeah, I think we'll be taking our time and and hopefully finding some funding to be able to continue to work together and also some spaces that we can maybe potentially exhibit the final work in. It'd be wonderful to have it shown in that area that inspired it. Obviously, you spent a lot of time doing research and then you talked about your studio in the sculpture factory and you talked about applying for grants. How does your week divide and what do you spend most of your time doing? What's your least favourite jobs, your favourite jobs? I suppose because of the way I work, I'm more of a kind of collaborative project-based artist and because my work is very much informed by research and place or material. I'm not going into a studio every day or painting or working with clay or sculpting in that respect. And like a lot of the work that happens before creating anything is the research, is the going to places, is the meeting with people. It's then coming up with a plan, a project plan, and then and then ultimately a series of tests. So there'll be smaller tests. So the research that we exhibited in the holding exhibitions in Solstice, that was really also a test for how something might work in the future. There's a lot of application writing, a lot of administration, and that's not something I entirely agree with, but I would have to say that 70% of my time as an artist is spent on a computer 
because that's what I have to do. I have to document my work. I have to edit those images. I have to keep updating my website, my CVs, my biographies. I have to keep applying for things nonstop. That's exhibitions, that's funding, that's residencies. And about 30% is actually creating artwork. And I wish there was more time spent on creating the artwork, but you just have to do all of these other things as well to be able to sustain a practice. And I do enjoy application writing as well, because also it allows you to get clarity of what you're doing. <laughs> when you're kind of, oh, what am I doing? I think you must be the only artist I've heard who says they enjoy application writing. It's when I get into it, I almost look at it. It's like an art form, really. And there's like almost a formula of how you're doing it. But yeah, for me, it helps me to gain clarity because you have to really break it down in steps of what you're going to do, why you want to do it, and what's the potential of this, what's the outcome, what's the anticipated outcomes. So that really makes you sit down and think about those things. And then you go, okay, I have my plan now. I need to compartmentalize things as well, in a way. Otherwise, I feel like my brain is just often in some chaotic universe. I, I know you won a grant recently. Congratulations on that. And I just saw an Instagram post you put up previously where you had been rejected for a similar grant. And I thought that was really interesting that you asked for feedback. Can you tell us about that? Generally, I would always ask for feedback for an application that you didn't get. And the Arts Council are brilliant for giving feedback. They will always give back kind of constructive feedback. But to be honest, it's really always down to just the competition. It's ultimately down to the, the competitive nature of these awards. And how I handle rejection is really by not putting all my eggs in one basket. That's essentially it. I'm not applying for one thing and then wait. Because if you were actually to sit down and wait for a response from the Art Council, you would do nothing. Because you're talking three to four months, maybe longer to find out an answer. So I might be working on multiple things or applying for multiple things. And generally, you will eventually get one of those things. So for every rejection, you always have a, a kind of a glimmer of hope that keeps you going. Sometimes being an artist can be a little bit like being in an abusive relationship in terms of you keep going back for more of this hardship. But ultimately, then when you do get the things and the opportunities come your way, they bring you to new opportunities and new things happen. And it is a long journey, but yeah, it's just sticking with it. Certainly, I was lucky that when I finished college, I went on to win the RDS Taylor Art Prize. And that was a huge confidence boost for me. I went into college with a very practical head. I wanted to be in art college because I knew that was a big part of me and creativity was a big part of me. But then I also knew that I had a child and that I wanted to get a mortgage and all of these things that people don't think about when they think of an artist, but we've got aging parents and care and children and dependents and bills and mortgages. And we also would like healthcare. And there's all of these things as well. And so I battled with this idea of going into the unknown and the uncertainty of being a professional artist. And I had actually applied to do the Masters of Education to become a teacher, although that's very much geared to secondary school teaching. And that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But also I was saying, okay, you have to be practical here and you need to able to do it. But then from my degree show, I won the National Sculpture Factory Residency Award. I went on to win the Taylor Award and become program winner of the undergraduate awards. And that was like, oh, wow. And also as well, it gave me some support as well from my family that were like, do you know what? You need to actually give this a go. So I did. And if I hadn't won those awards, I would probably be not working as a professional artist. I would have been overcome by the fear of taking that leap. And it's still fear. So every, you don't have work. You're good. Oh, but luckily for the last two years or more, I have continued to work. I also, I'm an associate artist for the Fiji Theatre Company's BIOG program, which is an early years integrated arts program. And I'm also an associate artist for Helium Arts Organization, which is an arts and health organization that works with children living with long-term conditions. And so through that work, I have accumulated quite a bit of experience in working in youth work and participation work. So I am quite lucky that now I do get offered quite a bit of that work as well. And it must be a nice balance to the other side of your work, maybe more immediate than the long-term research projects. I want to ask you, because you talked about getting confidence and the validation that you received from those awards that kept you going. What was the best advice 
you got as an artist? I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got was from one of my tutors, James Hayes, who's also a fantastic artist and has an exhibition at the moment in the McCrew Town Hall. Just before my degree show, I had an idea of what I was going to do, but then I decided I shouldn't do that and I should do something else. I just was really worried that, that this wasn't good enough. And he just said, you just need to go with your gut. Just follow your instincts on this and trust that aesthetic decision. I think you should go with your original plan. And then I did. Ultimately, it dictated everything that happened after that. I thought that was a great piece of advice. I think as you're an artist, that's definitely part of it, this sort of second guessing yourself. Because you're always having to make a lot of decisions on your own for yourself and for your practice. So for me, that was a really good piece of advice. Particularly on these long-term projects, Rachel, keep that gut feeling when you're working on something for so many years to retain that self-confidence and keep that thread through. That's great advice. Do you have any advice from your experience to anybody listening who maybe is not as far along in their career as you, let's say? Yeah, like we've talked about a lot of it. Rejection is going to happen ultimately, particularly if you're dealing with the Arts Council, because they often like to watch your profile grow in the first key applications. You may not get it or they may not feel your idea fits the particular award that you're going for. But ultimately, just to know that by doing these things, people are seeing your work and they're also seeing your name. And it might take a couple of years. Eventually, it will stand to you. I suppose the other thing would be around being reliable. I approach my work. I take it seriously. It is a job and I get up in the morning. My husband does have a nine to five job. We get up together in the morning and I have my breakfast and then I go to work. So I'm at work between half eight and nine. Now I don't finish at five. I usually might work weekends as well. But ultimately, I think for me, I live creatively. So often my work and my life are just intertwined and that's just the way it is. I quite like that the majority of the time as well. Sometimes just don't take no for an answer. Don't take that as the be all and end all. Just push past it. I just realize I don't really like being told that I can't do something. So I just find a way to do it. All great advice. And I love the idea of a creative life as part of your living. It's all connected. Are there any books you'd recommend that really resonate with you? A lot of the books that I would get would be almost like reference books. Often most of the books that I have on my shelves, I have not read cover to cover, but I go and I reference things and, and find essays and finish. Actually, on that note, I did go to the West Cork Literary Festival because I wanted to go to a talk that was by Cal Flynn and Katie Holton. And Cal Flynn this is her book, which is Islands of Abandonment. In her own words, she said it's a dark book full of hope. She's traveled to all these different places in the world that are maybe abandoned. Places like Chernobyl, where nature has reclaimed the land and that these really amazing things happen when humans are not present. So while obviously what has happened within these spaces is not good, they're still also full of hope because... With the absence of humans, nature has thrived and new things have begun and happened. But I like that because I like my artwork not to be all doom and gloom all the time and also to have elements of hope and that intertwining of nature and humans and that we can coexist. And who are your artist inspirations and is there anybody living or dead you'd love to meet and what would you say to them? There's lots, lots of artists, lots of contemporary artists that I love. I suppose just to name two, I really love the artist Bailey Lou. She's based in Texas and her work is installation based and she's actually does a lot of work also in uh, around environment. So her current work is called Dreams of the High North, I think, and she's exhibiting in Norway at the moment and she won a Fulbright scholarship to create this project. I did get to talk to her because we chatted via Instagram and when she was in Norway, she was like, do you know, would you like to do a Zoom? And we did and it was fantastic and she's just the loveliest person and really encouraging and I love that with artists because you don't always get that. You know, I suppose with the competitive nature within the arts. Another artist that I'd love to meet would be, I love Katie Patterson's work. She's a Scottish artist. It's beautiful but really clever. She's an ideas person and she's a bit of an artistic genius as, as far as I'm concerned. You don't learn about how to be an artist in art college and I'm still learning every day. 
about what it takes in different routes, paths that you can go down. I know that not everyone goes down the same path, but I really like hearing about that. Like, what is that journey and how did you get there and who did you meet? And I find that is very informative and encouraging and motivating. Before we finish up, I just wanted to ask you, I know it's older work, but I loved the installation you did, the fragility of things. It was in Ill and West Cork and there were these dandelion thorns. I just wanted to ask you, were these sculptures or were they actual dandelions? Yeah, they're the actual dandelions. How did you stop them from falling apart? So I collect them when you just see the leaves are closed and you can see the little seeds that are inside, but it hasn't puffed yet. And then I just snip them and take them home. And then I just had in all my windows, multiple jars <laughs> and then I would maybe put two or three dandelions in each jar so when they puff they don't hit each other oh and within a week they start puffing inside so they're in a controlled environment and then I just preserve them with a little bit of hairspray but they're incredibly fragile but what I did was before that I transplanted the heads of the dandelions onto the thorn stem so it was really putting those two materials together and I suppose the dandelion is associated always with a sort of beauty and hope and potential. I love that. Where can people find you on Instagram and on your website? My website is quite simple. It's just racheldoolan.com. And my Instagram is Studio Rachel Doolan. Thank you, Rachel. And wishing you the very best for this amazing project. And I can't wait to see what eventually will become. I'm so fascinated by your work. I think your work is full of hope, actually. I think it's very poignant and very moving. And I would encourage everyone in Dublin to go and visit the exhibition in the Botanic Gardens because it's very special. And if you'd like to dive a little deeper, I'm going to include photos of Rachel's work and link to her social media website in a blog post that accompanies this episode. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of The Warrior Artist. If you have time, we'd be very grateful if you could subscribe, follow, rate, or even write a quick review as this helps others find me. You can find me on Instagram at Aideen underscore Glynn and through my website AideenGlynn.com. Wishing you all the very best with your creative journey. Have a great week in the studio and remember you are a warrior artist.